Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 46. I'm Roger Pang, and I'm joined by the CEO of Not So Standard Deviations, Hillary Parker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which your title was confirmed in an That's earlier right. episode. Yes. Yeah, perfect. All um, right. And you're the, are you the president, and I'm the CEO? I think I'm some I'm somewhere down there. Yeah. <laughs> I I actually think that I thought you were supposed to be the you're the person who actually does the business. I feel. Yeah. I'm, I feel like you should be the CEO, and I'm the president because I'm kind of like the academic figurehead, oh, even though I'm not academic. Okay. All right. Well, I'll I think cha- that's where we landed on that. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I I clearly misremembered that. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, we uh, so we've been out of we've been on a little break for a little while. We took we inadvertently took the month of September off, um, and uh, and that was largely due to travel schedules. I mean, there's no particularly great reason for that. And, yeah, travel schedules and yeah, uh, certainly my lack of planning uh, in terms of letting Roger know my travel schedule. <laughs> same goes for me. It's not like I told you where I was going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was actually, I actually was slightly concerned because I set up a Cal event and never heard anything. And you're very good at replying to emails and, um, you know, calendar events and such. And so just like the time passed and I was like, I think I sent you a text that was like, are you okay? <laughs> and then it turned out that you were in like the middle of the Great Barrier Reef. <laughs> yes, there were no signals to be found yeah. out there, unfortunately. So I couldn't reply until I came back to civilization. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah. So, um, apologies, but Roger and I both had great times on our trips. So, <laughs> hopefully that helps a little. Yeah, we are back, though. So, uh, rest, yeah, we're back. Assured. Yeah. Yeah. Back uh, to the every two weeks cadence. <laughs> One thing we like to do before we get into it is to thank our patrons for supporting us through Patreon. So we have a Patreon page for the podcast. It's at patreon.com slash nssdeviations. Um, and we'd like to call out individual patrons who um, support us uh, into making the podcast. And today I'd like to call out our most recent patron, and it's Derek Thompson. Uh, and so thank you, Derek, for supporting Not So Standard Deviations. Um, and so we have... If you want to support the podcast and you don't already, we have a number of ways that you can do so. And um, Hillary's going to explain what those ways are. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So um, the at the we have one dollar, two dollar, and three dollar levels, and the one dollar level um, makes you eligible for a shout out. Um, we choose one person every episode, and um, the two dollar level. You get so you're eligible for a shout out, and you um, will be sent a not so standard deviations hex sticker um, and a, a note from me. And then at the three dollar level, you get all of that plus um, you get access to our outtakes, which are always very amusing and enjoyable to listen to. Right, Roger? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so those are the different levels, and we super appreciate it. We, uh, you know, use the money in order to um, keep this stuff running, and also, if we ever have to fly in a guest or something, we aim to be sort of at the break-even point in terms of investing in the podcast, so yeah. we super appreciate it. Yeah. Every so. once in a while, we'll go on a trip, or, you know, like the one time I went down to D.C. and we, you know, interviewed someone, so mm-hmm. once in a while, we'll do something like that. Um, yeah. And uh, otherwise, it's, it generally kind of supports the ongoing expenses of the podcast. Okay. So, I have a 
couple of administrative things to start with, actually. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, first is that I just I don't look at the data very often for our podcast anymore, but <laughs> I just checked <laughs> recently, and uh, I'm happy to say that our podcast has been downloaded over 600,000 times. Wow. <laughs> that is a lot. That yeah, that's pretty awesome. cool, isn't High it? High five. Yeah. Yeah. High five across the, the Pacific. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other little bit I wanted to mention is that our podcast now features chapters. Um, oh, I saw you tweet about this, and I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> yes, and the reason most people may not know is because not all podcast players support chapters. Uh, but um, if your podcast player does, then uh, I will insert little time codes when we like change topic or whatever, um, mm-hmm. and you can kind of access them, you know, at whenever you want. So you don't have to. So you can kind of skip around if you so desire. Great. Yeah, that um, sounds awesome. And actually, there's an interesting story behind this. So I tweeted out that like i needed some software to create chapters because it's basically like metadata that you put into the mp3 file Mm -hmm. um and there's no real like application for doing this so i couldn't figure out like how people did this um Mm -hmm. and it's and and so but and it and after i tweeted that out like a little while after uh marco arment who is the who's like a big podcaster he does the ATP podcast, and uh, he also is like he—he he was the founder of Tumblr. Um, oh, cool! Wow. And like Instapaper, um, and he actually—he actually DM'd me. He's like, "Here, just use the app that I developed." Oh, cool! <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So he has this like app. It's called Forecast, and it's like in beta so it's not like publicly available he's like just use this and 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 it basically wrote an app that was specifically designed for like including the chapter markers in the mp3s files wow so very specific app for a very well a growing audience of podcast producers exactly right yeah Um, (laughs) anyway so i was extremely grateful for him for doing that so um yeah awesome yeah that sounds great sounds like it's easier to fast forward through the boring parts <laughs> i don't think anyone would actually do that though right yeah yeah never <laughs> nothing is boring on our podcast so that's right that was just a, a other podcast yeah exactly well i mean usually you do it to skip the ads but we don't have ads so there's nothing, there's nothing really to skip <laughs> i don't know why that reminded me that there was an i saw some new yorker cartoon that was um a guy on a date and he was saying i'm thinking about stopping a podcast <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that was so funny to me. <laughs> it is funny though. <laughs> I know, I know. I was like, yeah, that's that's cuts to the core. <laughs> anyway, the last thing I want to say about that is that on my end, it was an unintentional nerd swipe in in using the words of Hillary. Oh yeah, I think it's actually supposed to be nerd snipe, uh, according to. I know, but David. that's not what. That's not what you say. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And Hillary's mis- misinterpretation. It's like saying on accident instead of by accident. Uh, like it, it was wrong at first, but now it sounds right. You know. <laughs> yeah. So wait, who was nerd swiping who though? Like what? I, well, I was. Were you it, it nerd would, swiping him? Yeah, I mean that it could look like I was nerd swiping him, but I honestly didn't even think about it. He was like secretly develop like he saw your tweet and was like i'm gonna get to work and he made a whole app <laughs> like that's what nerd swiping actually is. oh then that's not then that's not what happened yeah no it's not just getting like a you know hyper personalized advertising as was the case with you i see <laughs> it's more like they build it so this was yeah i mean 
this is the whole joke, you know, if you want to figure out how to do something in R, just tweet out to the R stats hashtag, this can't be done in R. Right. <laughs> like, very likely David Robinson will figure out <laughs> how to do it just to prove you wrong. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's more like what I was thinking of in terms of nerd. Nerd swiping slash sniping. Yeah. Um, a little bit of follow-up, which is about uh, personal cloud storage. Mm. So we had a discussion about this a, few, a little while ago, and I joked how people are now calling hard drives, how this one like random company was, call- was selling a hard drive, but they were calling it personal cloud storage. <laughs> right. Um, but this is like a thing, actually. So like, <laughs> I heard an ad on a different podcast for, for Western Digital, which is like a full-on like, hard drive company, and um, they sell a hard drive that they call personal cloud storage. Millennials are ruining everything, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just think it's it's amazing. I just think it's amazing. Anyway. It's amazing how fast that happened cuz as a as what I now understand myself to be as an elder millennial, um I'm very surprised because I remember I still have a hard, a western digital hard drive that, you know, has all my backups and media on it. Um so these are these are for the twenty two year olds it seems. Yeah, who need that personal you know, that fast access local cloud storage. <laughs> <laughs> but they have no money to spend, so like who is being who's susceptible to this? I don't know. Like I'm not sure who they're targeting with this kind of branding. But um anyway. And also it's not Western Digital, by the way, it's W D now. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right that's all i have did, did you have any other uh anything to follow up on uh no just you know it was really fun to meet um folks at the earl conference in london that's right um, yeah yeah so just fun to meet listeners so i really appreciate it um please continue to say hi if you see me somewhere i will always enjoy that <laughs> as i'm sure you will too roger <laughs> i absolutely enjoy it yeah 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 um yeah so um how was the old conference oh it was great it was super fun um it, it was, was where again such it... a so it was in london and it was right by the tower bridge which is near the tower of london it's just this it's this cool old looking bridge very iconic london view um so you can see that from like the lob, not the lobby but kind of the lobby for the conference like all the rooms like let out into a common area and you could just see the bridge from there. Um, and yeah, it was really great. I mean, that conference um, is put on by Mango Solutions, which is a consulting firm in London. Um, I really like the organizers and the crowd every time has been extremely attentive where they're like paying attention during all the talks and <laughs> not on their computers, <laughs> which is like a thing, you know, in many talks, as I'm sure you've witnessed before. I've heard of it. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Never during yours, obviously, but, um, <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was a really great crowd. Um, super interesting people. Um, yeah. So I definitely recommend that conference. They had one in San Francisco also that, um, I also spoke at. So, both times like oddly it was different totally different location but both times there were just really um engaged folks and a lot of good r earl stands for the enterprise applications of the r language and um 
every time there's just been like very interesting applications. <laughs> there's been interesting enterprise applications of R. So they live up to the title. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, related topic though, um, mm-hmm. we need to talk about stickers. Oh right. <laughs> so you tweeted a photo for people who are just catching up. You tweeted a photo um, mm-hmm. of. Uh, I'll say of a laptop with stickers that were, shall we say, inappropriately arranged. <laughs> I don't know if inappropriate. They were, they were arranged. They were the hexagon stickers arranged in a non-grid format. Um, I would. Say it looked more like a Poisson process, like totally random format. I would. Say. Yeah, I would say it wasn't random so much as intentionally disheveled. You know, okay. like. <laughs> There is, I think the one that was most upsetting was there is some hexagon stickers that were actually overlapping in like a non-pleasing way. Um. <laughs> it, I don't think it's possible to overlap in a pleasing way. Like that, that overlap is in and of itself wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is um, my companion who was with me at the conference and he got a bunch of stickers. You know, I was explaining to him like, oh, there's the different stickers for, you know, our studio was there. So there was all the R studio stickers. Um, and Mango actually had a cute sticker with a cat on it, which I was a fan of. Mango is actually the name of one of the founders cats. <laughs> and so they have like a lot of cat paraphernalia, if you will. And so, um, he went home and put the mango sticker on his laptop, but he put it in a way where it wasn't oriented to like seed the grid, if you will. Yeah. Uh, like it was off. And so I was like, I literally reacted. I was just like, Oh, you put it on wrong. Like, Oh no. <laughs> like you didn't talk to me and I would have told you exactly how to put this to start this grid. <laughs> and he was just like, no, that's okay. Like, I'm happy with how I put it. And so that like began the process of his artistic expression. That yeah, was... I'm just wondering, did that incident kind of overturn your assumptions about like how the world worked, basically? It kind of did, actually. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was so... I really... It had not, it genuinely had not occurred to me that you would not follow the rules <laughs> for how this. <laughs> and like every time I saw someone who had a hex sticker not in the grid, like uh, there's a lot of singleton hexes out there. And I'd be like, oh, it's so sad they don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so uh, I like kind of as a test to see if other people would react, uh, I tweeted out a photo of it. And um, the reactions were exactly what I was anticipating, which was a lot of, like, you know, a lot of horror <laughs> and, like, discomfort. <laughs> I'd say when I first saw that picture, I just burst out laughing. Like, I could, like, just <laughs> without, like, with no control. I was just, I just started laughing because I knew exactly what the whole, like, it was like the picture just said, like, 2,000 words, you know? <laughs> like, the whole transaction. Yeah, I, I'll put a pic, I'll put the link in the show notes. It's it's kind of amazing. And from the responses in, in the thread, like you could feel people just like breaking out in a sweat. You know, like it was. Just... <laughs> I was really excited because Nathan Yao replied, which he's not a very active Twitter user, but he's the author of uh, Flowing Data, which is if you haven't checked it out, it's a really great data visualization blog, and. Um, 
he, I was really surprised to see him reply, and he was just like, okay, that really bothers me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, yep, I agree. And then, actually, my favorite was the next one, because then he actually put one of them on his phone, and he just, like, slightly skewed it. I saw, yeah. <laughs> that was... And so I was just like... <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, I was just like, okay, that one's more painful. Because we did, we have a big discussion. I think he would want me to represent here that this wasn't, this wasn't just to make people mad. Like, it was, you know, he didn't want to be confined by, he didn't want to conform and stick, he keeps saying, like, stickers are for fun. <laughs> like, you should be able to do what you want with stickers, which... Yeah. We actually saw Hadley Wickham, and he was just, like, incorrect. <laughs> he was like, you do not do what you want with stickers. Right. <laughs> you put them in a grid. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And then I have to say, it was... <laughs> he had a really funny way of summarizing it all, where he was like, he's like, yeah, this is a little like taking a slide rule to the pep rally. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you all don't even realize you're so nerdy. Like, like you don't realize what you're saying to the world, which is that, like, something that's supposed to meant to be, like, chaotic and fun, you have, like, made into a very orderly system where there's a rule that cannot be broken. Right. Like, there's only a certain way to have fun. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's But it is funny, because I think, I do think what, what shifted in, in myself in my core was just like understanding how much this profession like attracts people who really do believe there are rules to follow like in a really fundamental way and like having people not conform to that is like genuinely upsetting (laughs) (laughs) it's like oh yeah of course we all entered this profession where we like count things very carefully and we like do everything really precisely and we know right. exactly the assumptions of everything single move we're making right and there's a process a clearly defined process you know yeah exactly <laughs> yeah no I've, I've had a lot of thoughts since then because i do feel a little confined i have to say and i think i said this to Hadley and other R Studio representatives, which is that, you know, I don't love their color palette, I have to say. Like, it's oh. not what I would choose. And so now I've been, like, exploring those feelings and, you know, sitting with those feelings. <laughs> not sure what to do about it. Right, right. <laughs> like, do I follow the artist path and, like, create my own, you know, sticker situation? I don't know. I don't know what to do. I have a new laptop with no stickers on it. <laughs> These things can't be rushed, you know? I know. Well, may- I actually did think there was a follow-up for us, which is that maybe we should introduce a non-hex sticker into the reward category. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> there was another follow-up, which was that... This was really funny. This was with a coworker of mine, John McDonald, where <laughs> we discussed whether or not to make... Um, another sticker for Hadley that's like a like a pentagon <laughs> instead of a hexagon. Okay. <laughs> and just be like, look, we made a sticker to like fit in with all the others. Okay. And, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot that you could do if you just decide, you know what? Screw it all. <laughs> I know. I feel a little bad like sewing I'm like, you know, this is like the postmodern sticker era. The post hex sticker era. 
Yeah. I don't know if I really wanted to usher that in or not, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> it's where we're at now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so this is why I've added chapters to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> if you skipped over this discussion, you were wrong to do so. Yeah, but now no, I, I want to continue this discussion because you said you liked the... You weren't a fan of, like, the Hex. Or, I don't know. You had reactions yourself, which I haven't asked you about. I, you know, I have to say, it was mixed. Because I, I I, loved the idea of it. And I generally appreciated, I think, the sentiment behind it. But I also believe that there are rules. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so like, you're not quite as much of an artist as I thought. Well, I, I mean, I kind of, I appreciated it on an intellectual level, you know, like I saw what he was doing <laughs> and I laughed out loud and I like, I really liked it. But on the other hand, like, I, it's not like I could ever really bring myself to do the same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I, yeah, I had to, I have to think, I have to sit with this a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> To, to really understand how I feel, I have seen laptops where they are just like that are just like covered with stickers, you know, like yeah, just the barely... graffiti style. Yeah, you know. but even that I think is like organized, you know. No, I agree. It has to either be totally chaos or totally organized. Right. And I think what was uncomfortable about this was that it was in between. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Right. It was like a weird, like uncanny valley of just like <laughs> stickerness. <laughs> Yeah, we did discuss whether or not it's, like, what may have been effective art is, like, a grid that's mostly perfect and then one that's off, <laughs> but, like, looks like it's a mistake. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that just becomes, that becomes more intentional, you know, it's it's not, his his goal wasn't to just perturb, you know, there's right. more to it. Yeah. I'm not sure what the rest was exactly, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, this will be an ongoing investigation and discussion. <laughs> so, yeah, that was like 20 minutes on stickers. Right. What's the next topic? <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, we have an email from a listener. And um, I, one question I have before I start is, um, do we have a name for our listeners? Oh, like, you mean like Swifties? Yeah, or like, I don't know, Deviates? <laughs> That's the thing. I don't think... <laughs> I don't think that's quite, uh, I'm not sure that one would work in, you know, outside of the bubble, if you will. Perhaps, yes. <laughs> we'll have to think of that. We can get, if anyone wants to tweet at us with suggestions, uh, yeah. I we don't need to have a name ears. for the listeners, but it might be fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it'd be fine. I just, yeah. I'm not sure. Non-standards. <laughs> or standards. <laughs> no, I feel like that's like that's like othering. It's like oh, oh you I all see. are standard. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, okay. Um Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't have any good ideas at the moment, but if people have in people are inspired to come up with names, mm -hmm. let us know. Yeah. Um Okay, so the email from a listener was about A B testing, right? And and they were saying that uh, most of the time with A-B testing, you know, you have you have two groups. You have A group and the B group. Um, and you often compare the means of whatever whatever response variable you're looking at um, between the, the two groups. And you compare the means. Maybe you take the ratio. Maybe you take the difference. Uh, you know, whatever it is. And maybe you do like a T-test or something like that to see if there's a genuine difference there. Um, and they were asking how come we don't uh, look at kind of the distribution of the response in in the in the both groups. So instead of just looking at a one summary statistic, why not look at the whole distribution of the response in both groups and kind of compare the distributions? And um, 
they kind of answer the question themselves, I think, in the question, which is that, like, you know, obviously this is more complicated and it may be hard to kind of communicate what's going on. Uh, but nevertheless, um, it would probably require more thinking and, you know, more thinking is usually good. But I don't know. I was wondering if you had any mm-hmm. thoughts about that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I I agree completely. I mean, so, like, back to the basics, you know, T-tests assume... I mean, there is a a normality assumption, so you assume that you're drawing samples from a normal distribution, right? Right, and (laughs) so the mean makes sense there, obviously. Yeah, and so, yeah, if you have distributions, like, I mean, usually in the tech setting, A-B tests are measuring something that is not normally distributed because it's... I mean, if you have something like a click-through rate... um, or something that's binary, then that actually does become a normal distribution, like, when you look at the mean. Um, and so so that's fine. But if you're looking at something like the time on a website or any sort of continuous variable, it's almost never a normal distribution. Um, and so I found for stuff like that, I've, I've used different methods. Um, I really, I'm a big fan of using uh, survival curves, actually, for that. Because then you can see subtle differences, like, oh, it takes people longer to, you know, sign up for the website, but then it comes out the same at the end. Like, after after a half hour, it comes out the same. Um, and so you can see those, like, subtle, yeah. That is the distribution, you know, so you are looking at the whole thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's a good question because it's... I mean, A-B testing, I'm, I'm starting to really hate that phrase because it implies that it's all very simple. And I guess when you have something like a click rate, it seems simple on the surface of it, but it almost never is. <laughs> like, are the clicks independent of each other? Um, usually not, because if you have someone who comes back to the website and clicks again, like, it can be hard to differentiate that. Um, and so, so, yeah, I'm a fan of not just doing a t-test and calling it a day for sure <laughs> all right um yeah i think i mean i think one issue that i've come i've run into a little bit is just you know when you deal with more information it just i think it naturally just a little bit harder to communicate um but um i mean i think a survival curve is a great example of something that lots of people understand and, and it communicates a lot more information um exactly but there yeah. aren't i don't know if there are necessarily a lot of examples like that and i think um it's just uh, so you have to kind of you can't just kind of dump it on people. You have to kind of work into it, I think. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we run into a lot is that, you know, often when you do a, a, like a clinical trial or something like that, you know, people respond differently depending on where they are in the distribution. And so mm-hmm. um, and so there you kind of have to look at the you can't just compare the means like you have to look at, um, you know, at the quantiles of the distribution. See kind of how the how the, the treatment, you know, changes uh, with that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, right yeah anyway i mean this is something where i do think that um you know not to (laughs) not to bring it up but you know like ggplot makes it easy to do like conditional graphs or like facet by a variable um and it can be it is or even like the joy plots that we saw the explosion of the joy plot over a few days on twitter but things like that can make it easy to really quickly assess like oh these distributions like the eyeball check does make them look similar and you see a lot of bimodal distributions in tech data where it's like oh the people who (laughs) the people who didn't have an error on loading and the people who did and can help you kind of like hone in on a more appropriate test um and so 
so yeah, I feel like the this is where uh, ggplot serves you well. I feel kind yeah. of visualizing data. I yeah. agree. Um, yeah. By the way, did you know that joy plots are not joy plots anymore? Oh, really? What are they called now? I think they're called ridge plots. I think now. Oh, um, so I'll put a link. In. Anyway, it, the, it's a bit of a long story as to why, but it was a totally legit story, and so uh, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, for why the name had to change. But um, oh, interesting. Was yeah. Joy Division mad? <laughs> no, it, it was actually more complicated than that. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, there, yeah. there were Nazis okay. involved. So anyway, it's. Uh, uh, Wait, really? Yeah, it, it, like apparently the Joy Division phrase is a reference to something in Nazi Germany. I don't know. I, so I have, I can't oh. remember the details. So Yikes. um okay. Yeah, yeah, it was like so it was like it was like this isn't as innocent. Yeah. So um anyway, so the uh the name is I think it's now the package is called GG Ridges, I think or something like that. Um yeah. I think the plot is a ridge plot, so um, Ridge plot. I mean, that's okay. Now that I understand, I've rescinded my. <laughs> it's it's good when your cutesy names are also not references to Nazis. Like that's, yeah. a, that's yeah. just like a yeah. like hard requirement of cutesy names. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah. All right. So um, all right. So that's uh, that was that email. Uh, do you have? So we're, we're going to do a little Apple Corner here. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> And uh, and we may counterbalance it with Google Corner, uh, yeah. <laughs> afterwards, yeah. Um, but this is a legit topic. So, um, uh-huh. f- first of all, we've had we previously previously had some discussion about kind of like doing machine learning like on device versus in the cloud. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, we did get an email from a, a listener uh, saying that you know he reminding you know us we're not reminding telling us that you know Apple claims that they do machine learning on the device for privacy reasons because they don't want to send your data out to the cloud. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and a lot of people criticize that as being kind of like, well, they just say that because you know they can't do it on the cloud because um, they mm-hmm. don't have the capacity necessarily, and so they just come up with this bogus privacy reason. I don't think the reason is totally oh. bogus. Um, yeah. Um, but I don't know. It's, 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 so, it's impossible to know the truth, obviously. Um, well, it's kind of backwards though, because doing it on the cloud would be way easier. Like, I guess, I guess I don't understand scenarios where it's literally easier to do machine learning on some sort of lightweight computer versus in a production machine learning environment. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point actually. I think if you go back a couple years, you know, Apple was really behind in any sort of really cloud infrastructure in terms of like they didn't have the server farms, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? So, um I think if you just don't have that capacity then then yeah, it is harder. Um but yeah. If it's just like pe- spitting out predicted values from a prefit model, then yeah, that would be easier on the device. <laughs> um, anyway, but in, so two things related to that. One is that uh, a little while back, Apple created a machine learning journal for its like own research. Um, oh. And they have like five papers published there. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting because <laughs> the papers don't have any author names. Um, and so... <laughs> Are they all student? <laughs> no, like it'll be like the... Student T. It'll student be like S. the XYZ team, like the Siri team or the, uh, you know, the software team or whatever. The, oh, so. yeah. Oh, man. That's rough. Um, but I get it. Yeah. <laughs> But all of this is leading me to an article that came out just recently on TechCrunch where they talk. So the new iPhone 10 or iPhone X, <laughs> which is what I call it, um, supposedly has this face ID system where it looks at your face and it kind of recognizes you and then unlocks the phone, right? 
Uh, and there was a question of like, how did they develop the system? You know, where did they get the data to kind of train the system and things like that? And um, an article came out in TechCrunch um, where Craig Federighi, who's the senior vice president of software, talked about how they collected data on faces. Um, and there was, you know, I think when the uh, announcement first came out, there was a lot of concern about, oh, well, you know, how are they going to ha- encompass all of the possible faces out there? You know, are they only going to recognize, you know, white people's faces or white male faces or things like that, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And because um, no one knew any, there were no details, right? So, um, and it turns, and so there's, so this piece in TechCrunch, they talked about how they gather, they basically gathered data independently uh, of, you know, just on faces. So they took measurements of people's faces. They got their consent, you know, took, and t- took measurements on people's faces uh, and, and mm-hmm. like in, you know, three, all a very detailled maps, et cetera. Um, hmm. and, uh, and from, and then uh, separately on the ATP podcast, um, they got some feedback. They got one of their listeners told them that they think that they actually participated in that study. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it looks like what it, from what it looks like apple i think probably outsourced the study to like a like a clinical research organization you know like a like a company that just uh, runs studies um and so yeah, to yeah. disguise the fact that apple was doing it um mm-hmm. and this cro probably just recruited you know thousands of people to do a study uh to collect their face data um and then and then apple probably took that data and then kind of built the machine learning model around it and then use it for the face id system um, mm-hmm. which i thought was fascinating because um that's not like the typical approach right i, I mean obviously it's the kind yeah. of approach that you can take if you have like 185 billion dollars of cash right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um it's not the approach yeah. that your average like startup can take right and um and so, like, I thought it was interesting because, like, you know, the typical approach would be, like, you, you, you distribute some free, you know, software or free device or whatever, and then you get people yeah. to use it, collect all their data, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. then train a system around it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, that has the problem with that you only get the data from the people who have the device, and that's going to be – there's going to be some selection bias there, you know, et cetera. Um, right, yeah. But it would seem – and there's not that many details, but it would seem that Apple actually conducted, like, a design experiment where they tried to get – face information from like a representative essentially a representative sample of people um and, yeah and i don't know how many people that was but it was probably a lot yeah it's funny because in my head my immediate reaction was yeah that's surprisingly parametric <laughs> there it's almost like an old school statistics study in a way um yeah it's very traditional experiment and going out yeah exactly how would they know that they've hit all the features i mean i guess i wonder how anyone could define the features of you know here's the range of human faces and here's where we need to sample from you know what i mean i think yeah i think it would be hard i think you have to just use some surrogates to design the study, right? Like, say, you, you know, you go to every country, or not every country, every continent and find some sample of countries and make sure. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it would be hard to do perfectly, but um, mm-hmm. you would want to at least make sure that you got, that you, if you had, if so if your design, you know, space had like, I don't know, I don't know how many parameters, how many variables it might have. Maybe you have like race and ethnicity and, uh, you know, male, female, and you know, a couple other variables like that. You want to make sure you kind of really hit uh, you you get a dense representation of that design space, um, mm-hmm. so and then you could target certain countries or whatever and try to recruit people from those places. I think I mean I don't think it would yeah. be simple. I think it's challenging to do, uh, and probably yeah. costs a ton of money. 
Um, this is a lot of work for saving like a couple milliseconds or something, <laughs> right? Like it's really not saving that much time. No, well, I, yes, I think you're right, but I think it it uh, if you want to like avoid the, the the traditional kind of selection bias problem that a lot of kind of mm-hmm. machine learning algorithms suffer from. Um, mm-hmm. then you kind of have to do this, right? Like, you have to get... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great... I mean, it's an awesome approach. It's just kind of an odd application for it. Oh, you I know see what you, I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but also, you know, this reminded me of... Um, I mean, I trust that there's people out there who um, study kind of... I guess, like, human phenotypes, human facial phenotypes. Um, What I was thinking about was that I actually did a Twitter poll recently about asking people how often they get mistaken for someone else, um, because it happens to me quite frequently. um, And people asking me if I have a sister or people thinking I'm someone else or, you know, it's just, it's like enough a part of my life that when someone says it to me, I'm like, well, you might have me confused with someone else. That happens a lot. Um, and some people replied and were just like, that's literally never happened to me in my entire life. (laughs) And I was just like, okay, wow. Like that's, yeah, that's different. And I mean, I think I probably have some sort of, um, kind of like Scots Irish, (laughs) like, like types and you know I, I have like features that might be typical for I'm fairly fairly British Isles through and through according to 23 and me okay and so um and so I think like I have some features that are like common to people from that area and like whatever and so then people see me and they're like oh you look like this other person so it's like somehow it's like rare but then when you get within that space it's common yeah um, yeah or not rare, but like rare enough that it's not like I look like everyone. But right. I mean, no one does, right? Yeah. Do, do you look like a famous um, person? I look like Virginia Woolf from the side. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that counts as famous. <laughs> Wait, which side? <laughs> there is like this famous photo of her looking to the side, and my aunt saw it and was like, I thought that was a photo of you. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not me. <laughs> I think yeah. one thing that can happen is that like if if you look like a famous person um and then that famous person is kind of like in the consciousness of people not like directly but kind of indirectly and then they see you and they're like oh you remind me of someone and they can't remember who it is you know mm-hmm. um yeah but yeah this is usually more specific where it's like oh do you have a sister in Arizona? Because I know somebody <laughs> looks just like you there. <laughs> like, and you said you did this once. You said that you did a triple check on someone once because you thought it was me. I did see someone who looked like you. But this is the opposite problem. Well, not opposite. It's a different problem, right? Because I saw someone else that looked like you, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Exactly. That's yeah. the thing. It's like I just look like people. Oh, anyway, the point it. is... Yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about? But the point... The, the, there was an actual point here, which was that um, I think... It makes me feel like there would be good coverage for people like me and bad coverage for people who are kind of singletons. You know what I mean? Right. Whatever that means in like a mathematical sense. Uh. Yeah. Like getting coverage, it's not It's not just a question of enough sample. Or I don't know. Maybe it is. I, it's, very, it's very intriguing. I would... I trust there's someone out here, out there, who's actually researched this and understands sort of face morphology or something. 
Yeah, I mean, I think my my guess is that there's some kind of basis that you could construct, like a mathematical basis that 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 you know targets different features of the face, or whatever, and then you kind of add that together, and that makes a face. Um, I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but um, there has to be some finite dimensional kind of representation that it, that you use, I think, for the model. And my guess is that. Apple for developing Face ID, they use this kind of design experiment as the starting point, and then as the product goes out to the public, you know, then they start gathering more data and then from actual users, um, mm-hmm. and they can kind of update the model and things like that as they go along. Um, mm-hmm. But they're always going to. But they remain in this parameterized space where they're not going to let the variables from white people affect variables for other races or something like that, presumably. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's hard to say, yeah. But my guess is that the model, the, the overall model probably does change, but maybe slowly over time, you know. Um, like maybe with each OS release or something like that. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so anyway, I, hmm. I, I, I think the one thing that stood out for me is that I think this is extremely expensive, Right. This has got to be extremely expensive. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I would say so. So but again, for a feature that's like of marginal benefit to the user, I guess it could be one of those things. I shouldn't like say that because I'm a big believer in how much reducing friction can help you use something. But it just seems like, you know, not a huge. I guess that's just really important for a phone. How quickly you can unlock it. I think it's important. Yeah. 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 But like. Hundreds of millions of dollars important. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I say I think my point was that like I think the lesson is here is tricky because on the on the one hand, you know, there's a lot of discussion about uh, selection bias in training data, right? And how um, we need to think about this carefully for machine learning algorithms for AI and stuff like that. Um, but the in in some cases the solution can be incredibly expensive and probably far out of reach from the uh from the average startup and i mean unless apple plans on making this data set publicly available uh it will be accessible to no one you know and so um yeah tough luck right so it's it's tricky because you're in a if you're in a competitive space here you know this data is super important to these companies and it's like a you know it's uh it's a competitive advantage over other companies i think so yeah no it's a really good point because it's also a really good point in terms of how we quote-unquote regulate I don't even want to say regulate, but, you know, I think if you pass that by an ethicist in isolation, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's totally fine. But then it's true that that's going to up the competitive pressure. I mean, in this case, you're talking about Google versus Apple mostly. So both of them have a lot of money to spend. Yeah. But it's like if you build an ethical, quote unquote, ethical algorithm, then people are going to want to compete with it, but they're not going to have the resources to do it, quote-unquote, right. And so then you are almost, like, incentivizing people to do the wrong thing. There's, I'm sure there's creative solutions, but you're right that it kind of prices out very quickly. Yeah, I, I, I just the, think, you know, it's people, trickier yeah. than you might think, than I would have thought, I guess. And I think in some cases, the you know, the ideal solution is can only be done, you know, by one company or whatever. You know, it's really expensive, so... Um, mm-hmm. right. that's, that's yeah. all I wanted to say, but yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's a good point. It's, it's super interesting. Yeah. Um, did you want to talk about Google? Oh, well, I mean, I have less <laughs> statistically. <laughs> they just came out with a bunch of new stuff today. So that was exciting. I felt, I finally felt the kind of, you know, 
I feel like people joke about like tithing to Apple every time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this has just become such a bizarre. Like at this point, they're literally um, telling you to send them your pre your the phone you bought a year ago. Like send it back to them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like we'll buy it back and just send you your new one. I'm just like, have we gotten here? But the answer is yes. The answer is have. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what'd you pick up? Um, I got the new Pixel phone. Uh, I haven't been super happy with my last one, so I just felt like it was time for a refresh. So, well, we can we can uh, bring in a, a slightly data sciencey tie in here. So, do you use Google Assistant? You know, I don't actually. Um, I do for a very select few things. I, I think the whole voice thing. I don't know. I don't know about it. <laughs> like voice assistants. Yeah. Do you not use Siri? You know, I, I do occasionally, but I think the most annoying thing I I find about all voice assistants is that they talk back to you. <laughs> you mean like they answer too slow for you? Yeah, I think like I think the information bandwidth of, of like speaking is extremely low. So I mean it's okay if you're like in the car and there's nothing else that you can do about it, but otherwise I'd rather just look at the screen and, and like just look at the answer, you know. That's so sad. That <laughs> Take some more time to enjoy life, you know. <laughs> that being said, um, my favorite device, as discussed previously, is the Echo Show, which has a screen and it'll display the information via text while she's saying it. So, there are devices that deal with this problem explicitly. Yes. So I well, no, I understand that. I just think that the. There, I think there's this idea that we're going to be talking to our computers all the time and they're going to be talking to us and it's going to be like we're having a conversation and I just, I don't see that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Don't you ever have moments when you're like chopping vegetables and you just need an answer to something really quick and then text is, or like voice is actually the best information bandwidth? Yeah. I, you know, I, I guess yeah. it's the information bandwidth versus ease of acquiring that's yeah. issue. I mean, I think there are scenarios where that works very well. I just, uh, I don't know. I guess maybe I'm more uncomfortable talking to my machines than you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love my Echo Show. I use it all the time. I have to say, uh, I we talked about that sensitivity versus specificity with these devices. Yeah. And I realized that I previously had answered those in somewhat... Um, I had not tested them that much because I don't actually talk that much in my apartment living alone. <laughs> and so, oh, yeah. so you- as I've been talking more in my apartment, there's been a lot more false positives. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, this device wasn't actually as good as I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't really tested it. <laughs> um, I've found, so. found that the Siri has gotten a lot better. Uh, like, I don't get as many false um, positives as I used to. Um, yeah. But... Um, yeah. Anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so th- They'll get it right. <laughs> the next topic I had was open source business models. And I think uh, we've yeah. had some offline discussions about this in the past. And I think um, it's this, I think it's, I think it, there's, there's a general, there's a very interesting question here of like, how do you support software in general? But I think open source is also a good, is a good place to start, I think. Um, so let me just start it off. Um, so I saw a tweet it's kind of a thread from Twitter uh, from user Zed Shaw. I don't I don't know who he is, but um, he was talking about. Actually, his thread was kind of in response to another thread. But the idea that like um, you know 
software companies um, that host kind of that 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 allow people to develop open source software. So talking about GitHub in particular, um, don't make it easy for you to kind of make money from mm-hmm. open source. Right. And, yeah. And um, there's not like a Patreon. There's not like a patron button on GitHub. Yeah. Or the example that he used was like having a paid branch, for example. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so you know, it's the and um, and so it's like people just expect open source software to happen. Um, mm-hmm. but there's a kind of a general unwillingness to pay for it. Um, and, um, and I think, so obviously R is open source software, um, and in our world that is. And so, and, um, and it's been developed by a variety of people now, and now, I mean, all over the globe. Um, and, um, there, and I think now the finances of R are different than they used to be. Obviously, like there's the R Foundation, um, and uh, there's also the now the R Consortium, which is different. Um, right. And so there's a lot of infrastructure there that's been built up, but only recently, I would say. Um, only very recently, yeah, yeah. I would say in the last what five years. I guess we can confirm this. Yeah. But- yeah. But also, and also, we have companies like R Studio and, uh, and and previously Revolution and a number of other companies uh, who pay their developers to develop essentially to develop r um and yeah. because r is yeah. open source all those contributions eventually make their way back um, you know to to the mm-hmm. masses right so uh, i anyway <laughs> so, so my, what's the solution yeah <laughs> <laughs> well so i think there's a lot of discussion like and so and there's also this white paper that came out a while back i can't remember the source now i'll have to dig it up uh, about it's a i think it's nadia and i don't remember her last name but it's 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 a woman who actually works at GitHub now, and she spoke at JupyterCon um, that was just essentially talking about this sort of, this kind of almost like exploited research or resource that's at the core of so many of these profitable tech companies, um, and that is open source developers. Right. If I'm If I'm reference yeah it's it's like this long white paper. She actually got some sort of grant to write it, um, and then now she works at GitHub. So yeah, um, so there are people at GitHub thinking about this problem for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll put that yeah. link in the it's show notes. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah, it's like a hundred-page paper. It's yeah. it's really extensive. Yeah. I just I think there's an issue generally though with software. I, I think if you go to the non-open source software world, um, and and ask them how they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think they're doing any better, to be perfectly honest. Um, oh, yeah. No, no. Because, you know, it's, like, I, yeah, unless you're yeah. like the developer of Candy Crush, like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think you're really doing that much better, honestly. I think that there's a general issue, which is that um, software development is, is controlled by like a few companies in terms of a few platforms. Um, mm hmm. And uh, in some cases, like the apps, for example, like Apple's App Store, um, they don't uh, necessarily want to, like, I mean, the most cynical take is that they don't want you to necessarily have a really profitable business model. um, Right. Because then that could lead to things, a situation like where people are really dependent on that software and they don't actually care about you, the company, you know? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, so the most cynical take people argue is that, you know, these companies that own these platforms like the app store or whatever purposely don't allow you to like really make a lot of money because they need to limit your importance to the platform basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
and I think uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know about that, but I think there is an element of like you know the developers are kind of subject to these platforms and whatever their rules are, and I think it's just hard. You know, discovery is a huge problem, and for, for them, and so it's just. I think it's just hard being a software developer now. It's just hard. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. I will say that some games make a ton of money. <laughs> like most games. Well, not most games. I should not say most. No, definitely not most. There are games, people yeah. who spend a ton of money on games every month. Yeah. Like, I mean, it seems like the six the, figures. the model that works is mm-hmm. basically you develop a game. It's free to download, and then you have some like in-app purchase thing that's just like addictive basically yeah (laughs) yeah exactly you just get them get them in the door and then make them realize that they can't live without you yeah (laughs) it's it's a time-tested model that has worked in other areas (laughs) right yeah it's best if you can have a chemical addictive substance exactly (laughs) involved (laughs) yeah but um, no, I've thought so much about this, and this actually was a huge topic of discussion at JupyterCon. Um, and I'll just I'll just mention I think I talked about it before, but NumFocus is this um, sort of like open source funding body um, that primarily forms uh, primarily funds Python projects, but also um, our open side, which we've both the benefactors of as people who went to one of our open size um, hackathons slash unconference. And then um, they also, I think they fund uh, Julia and Stan. And so like various projects um, in the open source space. Um, And so that one is, um, you can be an individual member. You can also be a corporate sponsor. I think our, I will say that I wish R made it easier to be an individual contributor. Um, so just some sort of, you know, oh, I use R as a professor and I want to fund it. Um, that's not currently doable. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. I should double check that. But um, the R consortium is where if you have a company and you want that company to donate to like get money into our projects that aren't necessarily packages. Um, that's definitely the avenue to take. They fund various projects that are um, kind of like our infrastructure almost. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. And then, um, but yeah, I mean, it's like it's a really, it's. I think you're. It's. It's very. It's good to call out the fact, like you said, that it's not clear that there's any model that's working right now. <laughs> um, that being said, I, I always feel a little icky about open source because I feel like it's, I do feel like it's a little exploitative, you know, the same way that unpaid internships are exploitative. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like someone wants to get their career going and they, you know, want to have work that's out there. And so they do an open source project that comes up a lot. Um as like, hey, it's a good way to get your foot in the door and show people. But then it's like, okay, so you're doing like a ton of work just in order to, you know, hope that someone notices you. Like that's uh, that's not how like there are labor laws that try to make that not happen, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then um, and then yeah, it's it's. I feel like it creates this very odd incentive system for people. Um, where they kind of like trust that money will come one day and there's there's an aspect of wanting to like you know save the world like with an open source project and that can create these like odd dynamics with people where 
I feel like anytime you're not like paying people fairly for their work, odd things come up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think one thing that's interesting, yeah. uh, if you, if you want, if you, to go back a little bit is that, um, you know, I think the original kind of free software ideas, uh, you know, they came about really long before the internet, you know? Um, and so I think it, you know, things are, and also like kind of free software large, largely came out of academia, you know, like Richard Stallman worked at MIT and, you know, and so like, there's kind of a sense it felt more academic back in the day um yeah uh, which may i think may have made a little bit more sense um but i think since then two things one is the kind of commercialization of open source software and also the internet i think a huge factor um has changed has just made the idea difficult to sustain i think for example if you're a a package developer and you create a package that is actually very useful um it's possible that everyone in the world is using it and now you have to support everyone in the world right (laughs) right yeah exactly it becomes like unfun very quickly (laughs) yeah and i think you know obviously before the internet that didn't happen as quickly um and and that's also that's kind of a downside too obviously you know you couldn't grow that quickly but on the other hand with um with the with the internet it's like all of a sudden your customer service department <laughs> has to address the entire world <laughs> yeah yeah it's um I, I recently i went on this rant when i was at um, earl london because i it is exactly this problem where you have <laughs> just it it's like it's like someone sitting around saying hey i have an idea instead of working with people you know why don't you just work with anyone who shows up and like you know your identity because you're not paid your identity is definitely tied to this thing you're doing you know because that's what else do you get from it right right? um and then we'll just we'll make it really easy for people to just file complaints (laughs) and so you'll feel like challenged every single time you know and like they'll interact with you the same way they'd interact with software they pay for so they'll be not you know not grateful, you know, and, um, you know, like, and then we'll make sure that it's all like kind of anonymous so that you'll say things meaner than you would in person. <laughs> and so let's just do that yeah. and like, see if it's a productive work environment. <laughs> what do you say? Like, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely an element of like, if an alien came from outer space and saw this, they'd be like, why did you design it this way? <laughs> I know, I know. It's like it's like, hey, things that work in a in a company with HR and with you know like regular one on ones, and your pay is tied to it. Like, let's just make a system perfect for that, but then just release it into the world, and like that'll just be fine too. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, which is actually why I mean, <laughs> there's a positive spin on this. Um, our studio recently started their own like community site um sort of addressing exactly this issue where um you know trying to keep github as this hyper productive you know space but then have a place that's not stack overflow and not um the r help mailing list like just a place where people can come and get questions answered especially like extremely new people who are a little intimidated um and they have like office hours with you know various developers at our studio and i think that's like a brilliant idea um just in terms of proactively getting in front of this problem so it's not just always this contentious you know 
back and forth. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I, I meant to do that. I forgot. They, I, they started that a couple of weeks ago now, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, it's great. I, I, I logged on to it like early on and then I kind of went on vacation. But um, mm-hmm. it's, it's really well done. It's, it's really nice. The discussions are all fantastic, uh, at least so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And yeah. um, one, th- one thing I'll just comment on is that, you know, I haven't used a, like a forum. Like I, I'm not like a big Stack Overflow kind of person. So I, I haven't like yeah. used a web-based forum in quite a while and it felt like Uh really weird to me (laughs) (laughs) like i'm used to dealing with like twitter and and stuff like that and like it it was just very different and it so it felt a little old-fashioned to me but it's nevertheless yeah i know what you mean actually yeah I'm, i'm the same way where i don't use forums that much yeah um yeah i was really excited um i sort of i knew i knew some I had some small taste of this before it launched, and I was really excited about the very proactive community management. I think it's, I mean, it's one of the. I mean, I know I'm always on here, like our studio is so great, like, but I do. I think that they've thought really carefully about interacting with the community, um, and I, I, I'm sure we've talked about it before, but you know, it it deserves stating again that JJ Allaire, who was the creator of Cold Fusion right cold fusion yep, yep. um like one of these very old web frameworks right yeah um very very old i mean i think like in the 90s <laughs> it was all the way back <laughs> in the 90s yeah yeah <laughs> and so uh but i mean he like it's a it's a they've set up a at least it's a good iteration on the previous business models of more consulting firms because that is sort of um you know you're asking for her like it's hard to be an open source developer in a consulting, a completely pure consulting firm type situation. Um, and so this is a little bit more of the, um, I don't know, like, <laughs> is it like Trojan horse approach where you get, you, you make software that's free for everyone in sort of a non-corporate setting. And then those people go out to corporate settings and, convince their employers to purchase the enterprise license and it has the agpl license which sort of allows for that to happen yeah and github's the same way where that's like you have the open source for all your fun day projects or side projects (laughs) night projects and then you're so used to using the system when you go to a company and they need a version control system you're like well obviously you should use github you know um no, I mean, I, I, don't, so I don't expect... that's definitely a good thing. Yeah. Sorry, no, I, I don't expect, like, our studio to be, like, solely doing this out of the goodness of their own heart. Like, I mean, obviously, there's an there's a business element here, but I think that, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the whole thing is cynical, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's still... Oh, um, no, I'm not saying that good. at all. Yeah. 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 I totally agree. And I think the... Um, I guess the point I was trying to make was that this is, at least for now, the most successful open source model I've seen, where you have... Um, you know, a company that benefits from having high impact open source developers. Um, and that was possible because one person who, you know, wanted to start a company and do this decided to use R. You know, it's like, it's not totally clear how to make that happen for everything. But um, it certainly seems like the, I feel, and I've talked about this before, I just, I feel like I can trust um, projects that are have a sustainable funding solution and happy developers. 
And surprisingly, you don't see that that much. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think your yeah. rule that rule applies to all software. I mean, I think if you use a piece of software and you can, if you use a piece of software and you don't know how the developers make money, like I would be very wary. <laughs> For two yeah, reasons. exactly. For two yeah. reasons. One is that they may be they may be doing something weird, like selling your data or whatever. But even if that's not the case, like if you can't identify a clear way that they make money, um, then you know, it's just there's something weird going on, probably. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think um, yep. it's not good. It's probably not good. No, you're totally right. Yeah, and um... well, let me let me just well, let me just add one more comment, which is that like I think the community site uh, for R is great. That is great, um, but you can't forget that you know R Studio is is really investing resources into this and making it happen for us, and you know, and I appreciate it. Uh-huh. But it's not like this stuff doesn't come for free, you know. Um, oh yeah, no, definitely not. If you use R in an enterprise setting, you should probably buy our studio enterprise because, <laughs> like, we need this company to keep running. And there are benefits. Obviously, you get like better customer service, and you don't violate their license. Also, a benefit. Yeah, <laughs> but, it's, it's hard to believe um, that they're not a sponsor, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, this is my free advertising. But I mean, that's the thing. I also think that you should get your company to pay for NumFocus if you use Python and IPython notebooks. Uh, or Jupyter, sorry, Jupyter notebooks. And, um, you know, it's like I I totally, I believe strongly that people should be paying for their, their software. And it just, I hate that it's only because I want to be a good person that I do that you know that's the part that I hate is that it's just like now we just have to go on this moral crusade of like convincing everyone that this is important to do right in order to make developers feel appreciated you know yeah like what yeah why do <laughs> like, we have that to feels do that wrong yeah. yeah exactly yeah and um oh the other thing I was gonna say early on um was you know the other thing that makes me feel icky about it is that and it's hard to know what came first, but it does feel now like the entire industry assumes that you have open source skills. Like, because especially in, I mean, part of it's me being in this sort of, you know, the, the like transient hub of tech where people change jobs literally all the time and people just float, like teams will float from one company to another. And, and so it's the industry almost expects that at least in this hub of um of just having these skills that are completely transferable and that's unless everyone just starts to use the same proprietary software which is not likely given the open source stuff exists like it's kind of like now the jobs assume you have that and the whole industry is built on the idea that you have that which i guess is like part of this white paper on open source generally but it's just a weird. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of a weird situation, right? I guess it's it's kind of forcing people into a situation where they have to use these tools, um, regardless of like, you know, whether they can pay for them or not. I mean, they just have to know them, right? I mean, it's just, um, and so it's it's kind of forcing people into a, like a questionable situation at times, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then you you take people who want to make a name for themselves and they develop software and then all of a sudden they have users and it's just it 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 just does seem like um there's people who've wanted to make money from open source that haven't you know and so that just feels bad i don't like that um all right well that's a good note to end on yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
What made you feel bad this week? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is, you know, this is, remember, this is the special After Dark edition of Not So Standard I know, we have like a year of this, like Hillary, Roger during a normal business day, and Hillary at the very end of her day it, it, it's a little <laughs> unfair like, actually because it's always you it's you're the only one who's at night i know because it's never gonna be you at night because if you're five it would have to be me at like 4 a.m if it's you at night I mean, that's not we can do that if reasonable you want. <laughs> <laughs> i think that would still be a low quality episode yeah. for me I, <laughs> not that this is low quality i mean yeah it just really it really does feel like we're in a dorm room you know like in the in the hallway just like open source man so broken like (laughs) Uh, we need you to do that voice a lot more on the podcast (laughs) my like college stoner voice yeah got it (laughs) i think college stoner hillary is is one of my favorite hillary's yeah 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 she was so cool she totally existed like a cool laid-back hillary in college let's just go with that yeah <laughs> let's create um, that illusion for our listeners yeah uh. <laughs> um i have only i have one more item that i need to relate to you yes and that is the licky brush this is my free advertising so yeah, yeah. So this, please, please expand quickly because that sounds weird. <laughs> so this is a Kickstarter, and it's a cat brush yeah. that looks like a tongue. Oh, gross. Okay, okay. Wow. <laughs> and so the idea is that you can brush your cat in much the same way that they would, like you know, groom you with their tongue, right? So you can groom your cat with this like tongue-shaped oh, okay. brush. Yeah. So Sandy Griffith, the other our cat lady's founder, um, we've discussed this at length, actually. Oh, oh, you have. I seem to remember, yeah, like some sort of conversation about this. We definitely have opinions about like the cat human relationship, and I think both of us are kind of against any sort of like explicit mothering you know like like calling cats your fur babies and like (laughs) and so like literally buying like a fake tongue so that you can be the mother tongue to your cat like i'm that might be too far for me you know yeah that's way too far for me Uh, i I can safely admit um but i you've had cats right would you feel comfortable with this device no (laughs) not even a little bit (laughs) I feel bad. I don't want like listeners who do do that with their cats to feel bad. That's just it's I guess it's just personal preference. Like I prefer, you know, my cat to understand that she's a cat. <laughs> For her to understand like I'm a human, like, you know. We're not all cats. But yes. that being said, do we cuddle every night? Yes, you know. That's but that's okay with me. <laughs> okay with me too. <laughs> so it's not like I'm not like one of those people who's like no cats on the bed. Like I no, my cat can definitely be on the bed. Yeah, I have to say I'm glad we had this discussion. Um. <laughs> I have well-formed thoughts. Well, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> anything else? That's it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, you can always reach us at nssdeviations at gmail.com. Um, and you can also find our Twitter at nssdeviations. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>